0: Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Because, for, verse 4, because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They've crept in. Verse 5, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. ...of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And we'll pause there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be to God. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, and uh, how, uh, while various passages have very different feelings to them, very different tones to them, from this one about warnings, with obscure references to many others that speak of our Father, who is a shepherd, who leads us by still waters, to others that give us clear instruction about how to be sanctified or made more into your image by the power of your word, washing us. While each different portion has a different tone and tenor, they are all the inspired words Of you, our God and the Creator of all things, our Savior and our Maker. And therefore, they are all necessary and profitable to make the man or woman of God whole and complete in your service. And so, Lord, as we approach these challenging and oft neglected portions, may we be confident. That every word of the whole counsel of you, our God and Maker, is necessary for our formation. And is it with that sense of duty, responsibility, and gratitude that we come to these verses this morning and we ask you in prayer for help, for insight, for humility? And um, for understanding. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I hope that it is with a grateful demeanor that you allow me to pray over you for insight, for help in understanding obscure passages. If you feel that I prayed that over you presumptuously because you already understand this portion of Jude perfectly I apologize and I'd like to invite you to come forward and teach this for me (laughs) no it's just weird stuff right it's weird wild stuff In his letter to Titus, who is a disciple of Paul, who Paul essentially commissioned and left on the island of Crete, Paul says, this is why I left you there, Titus, to appoint elders in every town. Elders, plural, in every community where there is a church, a body of believers forming, they need elders. They need guides, leaders, overseers, shepherds. It's all part of God's equation. We don't just have his word and go live on an island like Tom Hanks and Castaway. That's not the point of our Christian faith. We got the Bible and ourselves and we have everything we need. The Bible is sufficient, but the prescription was the perfect scriptures the community of the saints, and the oversight and watch care of the elders. In doing so, he said, however, not any man who aspires to this office is qualified. It's a good thing to desire, and if there are many men who desire such a post, uh, that is a good thing, and they desire for a good thing these men will live unusual lives in a bit of a fishbowl and they'll have a particularly unusual task in the life of the church and so there are a number of prerequisites that these men these elders must meet in order to be considered qualified among them is that those men should be living lives worthy of imitation You should be able to look into their private world and not find grotesque sin and hidden hypocrisy. These men should raise their children to fear the Lord. These men should be able to teach the scriptures and... They must be willing to refute false teaching when it shows up. All of these are prerequisites, not some of these, including he must be hospitable, he must not be given over to wine, he must not be greedy for gain. Materialistic is the idea. An elder must meet these qualifications and fulfill these duties, all of them. Paul even goes on to say why this is so important. The men who stand in such places as this one, symbolically and realistically, must be able to do these things and must live these type of lives because deceptive men will use religious contexts to steal from others and satisfy their lusts. It will happen, Paul said. They will try. Right there, if you're curious, it's Titus 1, verses 5 through 10. The responsibility of those who lead in the church is to proclaim the truth and to defend it. This is standard, basic, bottom line qualification for leadership in the church, so says John MacArthur. An essential function of shepherding is to feed the flock and protect the flock from wolves who would otherwise harm them. And it is for this reason that we are studying the letter of Jude. Verse 8 today picks up where we left off last week. Jude says, These examples from history, found in verses 4 through 7, These examples from history serve as warnings of God's judgment. And yet in spite of these warnings, the purveyors of heresy go on anyway, promoting their falsehood for personal gain. That's verse 8. Yet in spite of. You see it? This is why you should have your Bible open. Yet in like manner. These people also. Yet, or in spite of these warnings, in the same way, false teachers also. That's what that first phrase means. In spite of these warnings, Israel, rescued by God, slash rescued by Jesus, which is fantastic. When we read it in the Exodus account, we read it as God the Father, God the Creator, God the, right? And then Jude says, Jesus rescued them. And you go, whoa, let me go reread Exodus, but let me read Jesus every time instead and just see how that makes my head sort of spin a little bit, right? Jesus rescued Israel out of the slavery of Egypt, However, they abandoned faith in God, worshiped a golden calf, engaged in all types of sexual perversion almost immediately afterward. And then a year later, when God said, here's the land, take it, they did not believe. They said, let's go back to Egypt. And God said, okay, and an entire generation, a million plus people perished in the wilderness. Jude says, that was a warning to future generations. Angels who mixed up with humans, leaving their station under God's authority, they were bound in eternal chains until the great day of judgment. Which, if you take the Revelation account, it is to be presumed from Jude's writing here that these angels who um, mixed in or intermingled with humans, we're assuming these are the pre-flood days of Genesis... These angels who so left their station have been bound in chains somewhere in the spiritual realm and God will only release them from their bound chains in order to cast them into the lake of fire. That's a warning to future generations, says Jude. Sodom and Gomorrah, they left the proper boundaries of human sexuality, they took for granted God's blessing in a fertile land, and it can even be presumed that they had the potential of some knowledge of God, because when Lot was found, he was found sitting in the city gate and to sit on the city gate is essentially to be a judge in the community and to decide disputes between people in the community because you are considered wise and learned and insightful right what comes along with lots wisdom and learnedness and insightfulness it would have to only be supposedly the relationship he has with god of course and his the god of his uncle Abraham. And so it may very well be presumed that also Sodom and Gomorrah had the exposure to the truth of God's personhood as well as enjoying the blessings of God's fertile land, but they rejected him and his rules for life and pursued their own passions instead and so they received the eternal fire from heaven. eternal fire That's a warning, so says Jude, for future generations. And yet, in spite of these warnings, new Sodom and Gomorrahs pop up. In spite of these warnings, new heretics spread falsehood, almost as though They were oblivious to the pending judgment that God has reserved for those who lead his people astray, twist his words, and speak on his behalf without authority. Jude says simply, in spite of these warnings, these new false teachers Arising from within the ranks of Orthodox Christianity, promote new falsehoods. He describes them in the following verse, verse 8 specifically. He says, They love their sin, they have a disdain for authority. And in various translations, it reads that they they revile angelic authorities. In the ESV, it says, they blaspheme the glorious ones. But in most translations, it speaks actually of angelic beings or angelic authorities. It's a strange thing to say. Today, we'll consider what the Holy Spirit says through Jude are the Characteristics, as you see here, the characteristics of the enemy generals in the long war against God. So character traits, if you will, of enemy generals in the long war against God. We'll look at three characteristics and consider three points of application First and foremost, we observe that they indulge their flesh. Characteristic number one of enemy generals in Satan's army, they indulge their flesh. Again, verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. Materialism and sexual perversion almost always accompany false doctrine and false teachers. This is not uh, hyperbole or presumption, it is objective, observable facts. We covered this last week when we discussed the corruption that crept into the Roman Catholic Church, so I won't belabor that. The Catholic Church is not alone in this, of course. Recently, North Point's head of operations, that is North Point Church in Georgia, their head of operations received, and I'm sorry, moms and dads, they received a lap dance from a drag queen and posted the video to the internet proudly. That is the church's head of operations. Many of you know the story of Jimmy Swaggart, who amassed a massive, sw- uh, massive following in television ministry in the 70s and the 80s. He taught an emotionalistic Pentecostal theology. He lived in lavish luxury and was exposed, soliciting prostitutes on multiple occasions. Carl Lentz rose to prominence under the heretical Hillsong theology. He lived in New York in lavish luxury, acquired a massive uh, internet following. He uh, hung out with celebrities like Justin Bieber and then was exposed for living a double life of adultery and lies. Friends, in almost every case where false teaching can be found, materialism and or sexual perversion have accompanied it. They go hand in hand. We can observe that historically. It should not then be surprising to us when the scriptures tell us so. Why is that, though? Why can't the false teacher just teach his falsehood? Why does he also have to indulge his lusts and live in lavish luxury? Because this is the characteristic of the general in the army of Satan. They love their fleshy sins. Friends, if you are redeemed and you are in Christ and you are walking, if you will, hand in hand with the Lord, you, when, if you are waking up in the morning with a particular commitment to read the scriptures and to pray and to, to live a life of obedience to God's commands, let me tell you something, you will sin. You're going to stumble, misstep, misspeak, have occasion for regret, and have need to go to your brother or your sister and say, You know what? Two days ago I spoke out of turn. I didn't realize it at the time, but the Holy Spirit convicted my heart. You will sin, but you will not love your sin. That's the difference but these generals in the army of Satan love their fleshy sins the genuine teacher however crucifies his flesh lives above reproach is faithful to his bride and his repentant in a perpetual state of repentance and confession The first characteristic of the enemies in Satan's army, the enemy generals, is that they indulge flesh. Secondly, Jude says they reject authority. Every critic is a hater, as it were. But just continue with me in verse 8. Yeah, in like manner, these people also... What people? Verse 4, certain people creeping in, perverting the gospel... Verse 8, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh and reject authority. They reject authority. The promoters of errant religious notions rely on the strength of their own dreams, their own feelings, and their own special revelations. In doing so, they reject the authority of Scripture and they insult those who are committed to the authority of Scripture. The dreams, visions, and inspirations take precedent over the authority of Scripture. And friends, just as a side note, most often you do not find these men standing behind pulpits something like this one with a Bible opened on them you find these men as the center of attention in the room not symbolically and otherwise behind the authority of the scriptures I manuscript every one of my sermons down to the word and about 90% of what I say every Sunday and beyond is on the paper. So I like my podium. In fact, my father-in-law likes my podium because he likes it when I say what I planned to say and he gets nervous when I say what he can tell I hadn't planned to say because he is wise. (laughs) So, for that reason, I like my podium, but there's a much bigger picture being painted here every time we gather. It's that I am not the star, my words are not the revelation, I stand underneath and behind the authority of the text of Scripture. You should accept nothing less. These men rely on the strength of their dreams, their feelings. The the Lord gave me a special word, they'll say. Now, it is a unique thing to consider. Because when God was telling Israel that he would restore them, in fact, he would remake them, as a nation and a people, and that he would incorporate the the whole of the nations of the world into this one beautiful nation called Israel symbolically, but is in fact made up of all peoples, of all tribes and all languages. This is how he spoke of, of what would happen when those days come. Joel 2. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Shortly after God said those words through the prophet Joel, he was silent for 400 years. No new prophets, no miracles, no angelic visitations, silence. And then suddenly, shepherds are talking about seeing a band of angels. A rabbi bursts onto the scene preaching with authority, preaching with remarkable insight, confusing the, the obviously heretical religious leaders of the day, confounding them and catching them in their own trap that they laid for Jesus intellectually. Oh, by the way, he was also healing everyone and feeding masses of people miraculously like it was breathing. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? What was happening? Suddenly, Joel chapter 2 was coming to life. It was coming to pass. Later on, 50 days after Jesus' death, The apostles spoke with clarity and power in foreign languages the message of salvation through Jesus of Nazareth. This scene was so confusing because these men were obviously young, untrained, local yokels. I remember when I was introduced here, the first Sunday that I I preached is like the last part of the interview process in the Baptist church. I was introduced, this is Steve Gompers, he went to this college, uh, but he grew up, he grew up right here. Went to Coolwood Middle, went to West Mecklenburg High School, and I heard a murmuring in the crowd of, of approval. Hmm, okay, alright. He's one of us, right? These guys were just local cats, local kids. What was happening? They weren't the bearded scholars of Israel. They were simple men doing extraordinary things. Joel's prophecy was coming to pass. It must have been an exciting time for Israel, whose history is laden with dreams, angelic encounters, and prophetic leadership. Just read the Old Testament. It's replete with miracles and angelic visitations, and prophetic warnings. The fact that such occasions had begun again had to be exhilarating stuff. 400 years of silence, and suddenly, boom, the church was exploding. However, this led to an unhealthy level of trust offered to someone who claimed to have had a vision or a dream or been visited by an angel? What is to distinguish Peter having a vision of the angel of God in Acts chapter 10 and Joseph Smith in 1823 being visited by the angel Moroni? What's the difference? Who's to say one is authentic and the other is not? Says who? The answer is the apostles' message is consistent with that of Jesus, and it is affirmed by Old Testament foreshadowing. The message of these new angelic encounters is contrary. That's the difference. Paul even said, even if I come to you and I start preaching you a different gospel, let me be accursed. Even if an angel appears to you and tells you some other means of salvation, some other definition of Jesus, let him, that angel, be accursed and anyone who listens to him. Paul said, even if I show up next week and start telling you something new, kick me out. How remarkable is that? And yet... Here comes an angel. Here comes a dream. Here comes a charismatic speaker. And everyone just goes, wow, this is like nothing I've ever heard before. It doesn't sound anything like that old boring preaching that I grew up with where they just read the Bible and say what it means. This is new and interesting and exciting. And ooh, an angel, what did she look like? And those with those with a spiritual backbone, those who were raised with any notion of sound teaching are are standing on the sidelines watching this happen in history saying, didn't you read Galatians? Where Paul says, even if an angel comes, don't listen. Didn't you read the warnings that this is gonna happen? Why are you falling for it? See, the apostles and all of their angelic and and visionary encounters affirmed Jesus' teaching, the heretics of the day and of today undermine it, redefine it, and are not servants of it, it being the teaching of Jesus. Now there's much more to say on this, but the point is most thoroughly understood in the culminating next characteristic. Which is, number three, they defile spirituality. They indulge their fleshy passions, they reject authority, and they defile spirituality. Again, verse 8, because we're taking our time in Jude. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams... Defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Tom, can you read that part of Jude in the King James, please? Verse eight. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise the million, and speak evil of dignities. Speak evil of dignities. These false teachers speak slanderously or boast authoritatively about things that function outside the visible realm. That's the key phrase. They speak slanderously or boast authoritatively about things that happen outside the visible realm, that is to say, inside the spiritual realm, including the person of the Holy Spirit, the message of angels, the nature of spiritual warfare, prayer itself, and God's inspired word quote, such ungodly people lack reverence for the mysteries of the spiritual realm. Now, what does that look like? Well, part of it is that the dignitaries, as the King James says, or the glorious ones in the ESV, these beings played a special role in the giving of God's law. So let's just take a little bit of a journey through the unveiling of the scriptures so that we understand what Judah is saying here. The angels played a special role in the giving of the law. The law that Jesus refers to when he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Deuteronomy chapter 33 Moses is giving a little summary of what happened at Mount Sinai the lord came from sinai and dawned from sierra upon us he shone forth from mount paran he came from the 10000s of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand moses is describing when god gave israel the torah and who accompanied him 10000s of his holy angels Listen to this, Acts 7, 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Galatians 3, 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Hebrews 2, 1 through 2, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's what we're describing, the drift. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What's the point? Well, the point is, The angels played a special role in the giving of the law, the communication of the means of salvation, and the solidification of the New Covenant Church. The angels played a role in that. What do we have if we don't have the scriptures? We would be most impoverished indeed. And God was accompanied by his angels at Sinai, and the message was delivered through angels by an intermediary, according to Acts 7. And, and, and it, was, it was put in place by the angels. The angels, I don't understand it. The angels played some special role in God's giving of the law and the means of salvation to a wayward and sinful mankind. That's the point. Are you with me so far? It's not so much that angels brought special messages. It's that angels played a role in giving us this. Now, what do the false teachers do? They abuse the angels. That's what it says in verse 8. They blaspheme the glorious ones. And you say, well... How is it that they do that? They claim special insights. They claim special revelations. They claim special relation to angels. They insult and degrade the role the angels played in God's sovereign giving of his word by equating themselves with the angels and in fact speaking over the angels saying what the angels aided in delivering to you in the perfectly inspired word is irrelevant when compared to my special revelations do you see the point that's what they do I will give you a few examples Andy Stanley of North Point Church during the COVID shutdowns reviled those of us who were insistent that we must gather because the Bible says so. He said, quote, they keep saying, God commands us to meet. God commands us to meet. Come here to the camera. He does not. Meanwhile, Hebrews ten, twenty-four through twenty-five says Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as some have done. Do not forsake it. Stanley further seeks to quote unquote unhitch the church from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the foundation of our redemption. Without it, we are lost in the New Testament. And on one occasion, Stanley claimed that his homosexual church members are model citizens of servanthood and that the heterosexual members should be more like them, that their faith, quote, is greater than my faith, end quote. I bring this up only to point this out. Stanley is in line with the characterization of false teachers by speaking on his own authority. Rejecting the plain and perfect text of Scripture by teaching his own opinions above it. The angels delivered this, but I say, no, he doesn't. Stephen Furtick, Once literally, not ironically, not comically, said from the pulpit, I'm in covenant with God almighty, I am God almighty, end quote. A year later, not addressing this nor ever recanting it, he said in an unrelated sermon, I am not God, unquote, which is commendable because he's not but he regularly says things like god gave me a special word for you and then goes on to teach in such a way that his own special insights are superior to the text of scripture these actions only serve to confirm his previous assertion that he is in fact God because he speaks on his own authority. Quote, God needed someone to represent him on earth, so he made man and woman, end quote. God needed to make you is the message. God needs no one and no thing. But in Stephen Furtick's theology of God, God needs us, God is therefore us. He even once said, If you don't have faith today, borrow mine. You're gonna make it, I said so, end quote. Thereby making himself the source and object of our faithful expressions toward God to say you're gonna make it I said so is to defile spirituality and to speak boastfully about that which happens in the spiritual realm and so therefore by his theological economics he is God Once you do those type of linguistic gymnastics, you can say anything you want because you are speaking on your own authority. You need no other. A gentleman with a large church named Rod Parsley, you're probably not that familiar with him, he is of the Word of Faith movement, said, quote, into the television camera, somebody is laying hold of a miracle right now I can perceive it, I can perceive virtue is going forth out of me. I feel your faith pulling on me right now, End quote. A statement like that can only be assumed to be connecting himself with the words of Jesus when the woman in Mark chapter 5 touched the hem of his garment and he perceived virtue or power had gone out from him. And he said, who touched me? To make such a statement is to presume yourself to be the source of healing, the source of virtue. Kenneth Copeland pervades the same idea on his televised preaching show, quote, when I read in the Bible where God says, I am, I just smile and say, I am too. End quote. Creflo Dollar said, I'm going to say this to you right now. You are gods. Each of these men, under the auspices of Orthodox Protestant faith, have elevated themselves above the scriptures and teach in such a way that their own insights and revelations are superior to the text of Scripture. And Jude characterizes such actions as the abuse of angels or the blaspheming of the glorious ones because these men reject the Scriptures given by God, accompanied by his angels, and instead speak on their own authority. To illustrate the point, Jude makes reference to something called the Assumption of Moses in verse 9. The Assumption of Moses is a historical Jewish text that, that uh, recounts an event after the death of Moses where... Michael the archangel and Satan are arguing, they're fighting over who gets the body of Moses. Satan says, I get his body because he's a murderer. And Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. Now, we're not assuming, nor does Jude assume, that this is canonical, actual, evidence of exactly what happened after the death of Moses. We should not assume that just because Jude quotes from the Assumption of Moses that the Assumption of Moses should be considered valid text wholesale. We don't have time to explore the reasons why. Maybe we'll get to that next week. The point is Jude uses this reference to say this. Michael An archangel in the army of God, in his pure, undefiled state, would not even presume to speak a rebuke over Satan, the fallen angel, because that would be too presumptuous for him, and instead says, the the Lord rebuke you but these men stand in pulpits like this and say, I have a word for you. Jude goes, the archangel Michael wouldn't even do that, bro. You see the point? That's the point of that obscure reference. It's not to lead us down an endless rabbit trail of extra biblical or apocryphal texts, though the exploration of it is is fun and enlightening, and we could do another sermon on it right now if we'd really wanted to, but the nursery workers are already going to wring my neck, so we better wrap this up. Well, in Acts chapter twenty, Paul says false teachers will arise from within your ranks. In Second Peter, Peter says false prophets will rise from within. Let's read those texts together. First, second, Peter. But false prophets also arose among the people, giving a history lesson of Israel, just as there, look, 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 will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. They keep saying, we have to meet. God commands us to meet. God commands us to meet. He does not. The way of truth... Is blasphemed while the heresy of the man is promoted do you see how the two things must go hand in hand and in their greed they will exploit you with false words which is to say fleece you or squeeze you for your money and for your effort Acts chapter 20 Paul is meeting with the elders of the local church off the coast of Ephesus he says pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things they won't just come in from the outside they'll arise from within from the seminaries from the mainline denominations they will speak twisted things to draw away the disciples after them therefore be alert Paul warns that they'll come from within Peter warns that just like false prophets came up back in the day, they'll come up again. Jude says, they are here. You see the difference? They're coming. They're coming. They're here. So be on guard. Friends, I don't share this because I enjoy it. I do not, this is not my favorite kind of sermon. I I do not hate these men I hope and pray for their repentance and for their salvation. I share this out of duty. I'm commanded to warn you about false teachers, to protect you from them, and to expose them for the wolves that they are. In each case, whether we go back to last week, speaking of the Roman Catholic Church, or speaking of each of these organizations that these various men run— In each case, there are genuine Christians caught up in the web of these false teachers' lies. They are genuinely trusting Jesus for their salvation, but they are simultaneously being weakly poisoned by false doctrine. They are being robbed of the good food of God's word. These wolves prey on these people by receiving and abusing their tithes, and by co-opting their volunteer efforts. Instead of funding an authentic church, these folks caught in the web of deception are funding the ego of these men and their ambitions and their lavish lifestyles and the heresy that the organization promotes. Instead of expanding, expending their volunteer efforts in a genuine church, their labors are being used to fuel an apostate church and their labors and funds give public accreditation to these heretical church-adjacent complexes, which is the best word phrase I can use for a false church. They are church-adjacent complexes. That's what's so grievous about what these men are doing, is that there are genuine brothers and sisters, your brothers and sisters, who are caught in the tangle of lies. And they're expending their efforts, and they're giving of themselves, they're giving of their pocketbooks to fuel heresy, ego, lavish lifestyles, sexual immorality, and more. That's the heartbreak of it, friends. Those men will meet their doom or they will meet Jesus and repent. That's between them and Jesus. But woe to us if we do not say to our neighbor, friend, I love you. You need to come out of that false church. And they go, what are you talking about? And you're prepared to warn them If the body of Christ had been better warned in decades past, been better informed, had been better taught, perhaps these heretics, these apostates, would never have gained such a large and influential following. We can't know for sure. What we do know is that the Church of Jesus Christ has been historically robbed of sound teaching by ambitious men who love their money and love their things. Once the church is robbed of sound teaching, another generation rises up behind them who are raised by parents who are ill-equipped to teach their children to be discerning of falsehood. And so, we note, robbery of sound teaching leads to an open-mindedness to false teaching. Robbery of false teaching leads to an open-mindedness to false teaching. And then men can say, I am God Almighty on the platform, and undiscerning, spiritually starved, uneducated, uncatechized people go back the very next Sunday for a fresh dose of heresy. And so, number one, I would implore you to recognize the mercy of God. His warnings from history were being ignored, Jude 4 through 6. The warnings themselves are evidence of his heart for mercy and forgiveness. The Lord, 2 Peter 3 9, does not wish any would perish, but that all would come to salvation. He is merciful enough to warn, he is merciful enough to punish in dramatic, undeniable fashion. So that generations will come and they'll walk into this land and say, Why is this land so barren? Why is it so salty? Why would nothing grow here when in all the surrounding regions it's so fertile? And the story would be passed down because the fire of God rained down on those who rejected him, be warned. You see? It's mercy. not an act of hatred to call a heretic a heretic, it's mercy. It is God's mercy on you to be warned that every man or woman who is called pastor by some organization is not necessarily a purveyor of the genuine gospel. Be warned. If you are adequately warned and subsequently armed with sound doctrine, God's mercy has spared you the deception of these wolves in sheep's clothing. And so, recognize his mercy. Number two, I would implore you to recognize that for every false claim, there is a corresponding doctrine. For every false claim, there is a corresponding doctrine. What do I mean? Well, for every false claim these heretics make, there is a scripture-saturated orthodox doctrine, that means settled teaching of the church, that refutes it thoroughly and in print. In each case, God gets the glory instead of these men and their special revelations. Furtick, Dollar, Copeland, and others teach a little God's doctrine of man, part of the Word of Faith movement. This is the idea that when God made man in his own image, he was in need of a representative on earth. He needed you, and so therefore you are yourselves God incarnate. He needs you to be so. The settled teaching of the church for eons explains that while we're made in God's image, we do not possess all of his attributes and are therefore not God. The way the church defined this is through the terms communicable and incommunicable i know i know it's late i know you're full i'm just giving you one example communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes god is faithful and you are called to be faithful faithfulness is a fruit of the spirit that is a communicable attribute however you will never be as faithful as God because his his faithfulness is perfect perfect faithfulness is an incommunicable attribute of God. we in our covenant of marriage and friendship loyalty, we can be faithful but not like God. We do bear His image, but we are not God's. See the church has settled this and explained it. God is all-knowing it is his omniscience. It is an incommunicable attribute. Does he grant to us a new mind upon repentance and salvation? Yes. Does he grant to us wisdom, James 1, for those who ask of it? Mm Mm-hmm. Do we have, Jude verse 10, do we have a particular understanding that our unredeemed neighbors cannot have and do not have? Yes. Does that mean we're omniscient? No. Why? Because we're not God. He's omniscient. We are not but yet the church has been robbed of the teaching of the incommunicable and the communicable attributes of God, and therefore when a man stands in a pulpit with the seeming accoutrement of legitimacy and says, you are little gods, let me explain to you how, the church goes, oh, I I guess I am. How much, again, is this check supposed to be made out for? But if they were armed with sound teaching, they would go, nuh-uh, I know better. That's settled. For every false claim, there's a corresponding settled Orthodox teaching. Here's the point. Because the church has not been properly educated on the doctrines of God and the doctrines of man, they can sit under a false teacher and they don't know why it's wrong. And these charlatans are clever with their words. So let us recognize that there is a settled teaching for each of their false claims. Thirdly, I would implore you to recognize the necessary exclusivity of the simple gospel. The necessary exclusivity of the simple gospel. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The very next thing he says is, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves you will recognize them by their fruits the simple message of faith that has survived all forms of attack is come to me all who are weary and i will give you rest it's repent of your sins and accept the free gift of salvation by grace through faith and then what do we do Romans 12:1 and 2 do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed into the likeness of Jesus in humility and purity and service generosity and fidelity to God and God alone by the renewing of your mind by the washing of the water of the Word of God the simple gospel. Nowhere else, friends, in no other special revelation or angelic encounter do we find hope for the hopeless, peace for the brokenhearted, newness of life for the wayward son or daughter. All other claims to spirituality and insight are offensive intrusions. Trust in Christ and Christ alone. Ignore the apostates and their slick Presentations and resist the urge to find some way around the hard truths of God's morality. If today you hear the voice of the Lord, the scriptures say, Do not harden your hearts. Well, let's pray and we'll conclude without song, given the time. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you that by your grace, uh, we are exposed to it. For we did not come clamoring for you. We did not burst out of the womb reaching for you, but we were born with a great need for you. And in your grace, you reach down to us. And you softened our hearts and you even molded the moments of our lives to bring us to this very day and these very words whereby we are washed by the water of your word. And so we say thank you. You are good. Equip us and arm us with the defenses that we need to resist false teachers, and equip us with a compassion for those who are caught in their web of lies. Go before us and anoint our words. Soften our hearts to conviction that we are not caught up in them, and use us for the building of your kingdom. In Christ's name we beg of you, amen. Amen.